This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. This is the Relic Radio Show, 60 minutes of radio drama you can find every Tuesday at RelicRadio.com. first story this week comes from Nightbeat. We'll hear Twill Be the Death of Me from July 10th, 1950. After that, it's the big story and friendly betrayal their episode from March 19th, 1952. Wheaties presents Nightbeat. On stage tonight, transcribed from Hollywood, Nightbeat, another in the Wheaties' big parade of exciting half-hour presentations. Nightbeat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories begin in many different ways. This one began when a man who wanted to play king and ended with a real king taking top billing. Old King Death. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Wheaties Flakes are not very large, but my, my, what they have for you. They've got vitamins and minerals and protein galore. They've got crispness and a nut-like taste. And they're flake after flake of genuine fun. Breakfast fun. Like when you slice bananas on Wheaties and pour on the milk and spoon into them and chomp down on them. What could be more eating fun and still be so good for you? Why, every Wheaties flake is a whole kernel of wheat. And you know how much whole wheat does for you. Breakfast of champions. Breakfast of kids. Breakfast of grown-ups from coast to coast. Oh, Wheaties Flakes are not very large, but you dig into them first thing in the morning and they'll still be with you long toward noon. And that's a promise. Buy some Wheaties. Buy lots of Wheaties very, very soon. And see how Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. Chicago's theatrical district at night is a river of light, flashing marquees and gay crowds. But through it flows a deep current of hunger and disenchantment, illusion and hope. Yes, hope forever dying, but never quite dead. There was hope, a strained threadbare hope on old Max Saracen's face as I crossed Randolph Street and saw him buttonholing Charles Kelsey. Kelsey's a play producer currently more famous for the frequency of his marriages than those of his stage hits. As I strolled up, Max had one hand on Kelsey's arm, his gaunt, bearded face eager and anxious. You should have notified me, Charles. I certainly would have appeared at the tryouts if I'd known they were being held. Surely it's not too late. I'm sorry, old boy. Oh, hello there, Randy. Hiya, Charlie. Hello, Max. Charles, listen. You know my work. Remember my performances in the Theater Guild Shakespeare Festival... 
Me King Lear, me Richard III. Yes, yes, Max, yes, but that was over 20 years ago. And it was I who asked that grand old man of the theater, Frank Gadosh, to take you on as an assistant. If it weren't for me... Can't you understand? Henry IV has already been cast. What what do you do with a fellow like this, Randy? Henry IV? Don't tell me Shakespeare on Randolph Street. Why not? In modern dress and a few sensational innovations that I promise you, Randy, will make Chicago sit up and take notice. Well, maybe you got something, Kelsey. I promise you they will sit up and take notice, Charles, if I do King Henry for you. It cannot be too late. You said yourself it'll be... Max Saracen paid no attention to me. His haunted eyes were fixed on Charles Kelsey and his tall, angular figure towered over us as he pleaded with the producer. The old actor had a single-track burn. But I could see that as far as Kelsey was concerned, it was going in the wrong direction. It embarrassed me to hear him plead with Kelsey for the old man at once been great. Shakespeare's kings from Priam to Claudius. I've said all I've got to say to you tonight, Max. Now, if you'll kindly remove your hand from my arm... I'm not asking for any major part, Charles. The part of the king is fairly minor in this play, but it was made for me. Max, for the last time... Charles, please, I need it. Oh, you old relic, you. Do I have to use force? Oh, cut out the rough stuff, Kelsey. Don't move! Hey, hold! The old man changed before my very eyes. It was frightening. He was suddenly a giant, taller and broader than I'd ever seen him, the stoop in his back gone and rage blazing from a face of iron. He stood like a king in majestic wrath, his eyes darting about until he spotted Charles Kelsey pushing his way through the crowd. Hold, you foul, fat-witted dog! Stop! Max, wait! Keep away. Take your hands off me! Max, don't be a fool. I'm warning you, Max. I don't want to hurt you. Help! Help me! Max, stop it. Stop it. You're killing him. Max staggered back as I drove my shoulder into his chest and Kelsey dropped to the pavement, still kicking. I hurried Max across the street where my car was parked and took off just as a cop showed up. When we got out of traffic, I headed out Sheridan Road along the lake. A nice cool breeze blowing off the water, Max. Feel better? Why, why yes, yes, I, I feel all right. You're, you're Randy Stone, the journalist. Who did you think it was? I, uh, I just didn't. Uh, what happened? What do you mean? What happened? You had a little argument. Max, look at me. Don't you remember? Oh, what time is it? Wait, it's, uh, it's nearly eight. Oh, I'm late. How could I have forgotten? What? I was going to see Mr. Kelsey, Charles Kelsey, you know, the producer. Oh, I see. He's opening with the production of Henry IV. You've probably heard about it. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, look, Max, uh, why don't you join me in a bite to eat at Mr. Joe's? What do you say? Why, uh, what time did you say it is? It's about eight. Eight. Uh, He often works late. Yes, of course, Uh, my dear lad, would you mind dropping me by Charles Kelsey's office on uh, Randolph Street, the Warwick building? I may catch him yet. Well, look, we can call him up and... Uh, oh. Eh? What is it? A police car just pulled in behind us. Some Eagle Scout must have taken down my license number. What do you mean? Why? Max Harrison? I, yes, I'm he. All right, climb out. What? I? Now, look, officer. What's the meaning of this? The meaning is you're under arrest. <laughs> They bundled Max into their car and drove off. I tailed them to headquarters where Max was booked for a simple assault, uh, a misdemeanor, and held on $50 bail. I found a telephone and called up Max's home. His wife answered. She broke down when I told her what had happened. How could he? He was depending so much on getting a part of Mr. Kelsey's play. It meant everything. Well, Max isn't well, Mrs. Saracen. The quicker you get him to a doctor, the better off he'll be. 
dollars. We haven't anything, Mr. Stone. Well, there isn't even any food in the house. Oh, uh... Oh, Max, he's been going crazy trying to make ends meet, trying to pay my doctor's bills. Well, look, don't, uh, don't worry now. I'll see what can be done. Well, what could I do? Not much. So I went to the office. I touched a few of the boys for a five here, a ten there, until I had it. Then I went back to headquarters. The desk sergeant stared at the money. What's this? Max Harrison's bail. You can turn him loose. I turned him loose about 20 minutes ago. What? Sure. Kelsey dropped the charges. Oh, I see. He <laughs> must have finally figured out which side his publicity was butted on. Max, go home? I don't think so. Kelsey sent a limousine over to pick him up. He wants to see him. Kelsey? Wants to see Max? Well, that's what the chauffeur said. You know, Stone, I'm beginning to wonder if I did the right thing. The old man didn't seem right in the head. I'm kind of worried. You're worried. So long, Sergeant. Hey, where are you going? To Kelsey's office before Max kills him. I couldn't imagine why Charles Kelsey would want to tempt fate by bringing Max to his office. But whatever the reason, I was too fond of the old actor to have him run the risk of killing a man. I rushed to the Warwick building, went up to the 10th floor where Kelsey maintained his offices. I was about to go in when the door jerked open. Max Saracen shuffled out, pushing past me blindly, and I grabbed his arm. Hey, Max. Huh? Oh, oh, Randy. What is it? What happened? Huh? Oh, oh, oh nothing. Why? What did Kelsey want to see you about? He, he offered me a job. <laughs> a job. Max. Yes? What kind of a job? Playing? Playing a part? What kind of a part? I can't tell you. Please let go of me, Randy. No, no, wait a minute, Max. No, wait a minute. What's the big mystery? What, what kind of a job is this going to be, anyway? Oh, it could be the death of me. Now, please, let go of my arm, Randy. The death of me. Max. General Mills is bringing you Night Beat. Starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. You know something? You use up an awful lot of energy in a day. Whether you're mending fences or breaking sales records, writing novels or wringing out clothes. Doesn't much matter. You burn it up like a champion ball player burns it up. So why shouldn't you store up energy like a champion stores it up? Why shouldn't Wheaties be doing for you what Wheaties do for ball players? Well, I can answer that question. Wheaties should. Wheaties should be giving you vitamins and minerals and proteins. Wheaties should be giving you that early morning energy that helps you through the whole a.m. Wheaties should be providing you with crisp, nut-like eating fun at breakfast. And believe me, Wheaties will if you give them a chance. They're not known as breakfast of champions for nothing. Not on your life. Every Wheaties flake is made from a whole kernel of wheat. It counts big in that breakfast bowl. And the more the Wheaties the bigger the breakfast time help you get. Very simple, really. You buy Wheaties, you bring them home, you eat them faithfully when you bounce out of bed, and Wheaties will give you what the ball players get, right in your own sunny kitchen. Breakfast of champions. Breakfast for you. Just like that. Try them. See how Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. <laughs> And now, back to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. After Max Saracen had publicly humiliated Charles Kelsey by attacking him in the street, I didn't think the producer was going to offer Max a job without some kind of a catch to it. 
And when Max emerged from Kelsey's office, I could see by his face that I was right. The old actor was crushed. I barged into Kelsey's office to find out for myself and to warn him that he was playing with dynamite. Mr. Stone, no man or woman for that matter can cross me with impunity. I keep books and I settle all accounts. Every slight, every blow, every insult. I keep a record of them all, Mr. Stone. I overlook nothing and I repay with interest. What satisfaction is there getting even with someone who doesn't even know what he did to you? You expect me to believe that? Your mind is so narrow it squeezes right through the facts. I'll remember that. I wish you would. Max is a sick man. Now, what kind of a job did you give him? Now, let's have it. Take your hands off me. I asked you. Why is he so upset? Disappointment. What else? He wanted the part of King Henry. All I could give him was the job of understudy. Understudy? Then why the secrecy? The old hand fancies himself another Barrymore. He doesn't want it known that he's had to accept the part of a mere understudy. It's quite obvious, isn't it? Mm, just uh, when is this show going to open? Oh, in three or four months, I imagine. You're satisfied? Now get out. Yes, I'll be happy to, just as soon as you... Tell me who's going to play financial angel to your Shakespearean clam bake now that your wife has separated her bankroll from it. My wife and I have suffered long enough from the malicious lies of scandal mongers like you, Mr. Stone. Oh, yes, yes, uh, I know. Uh, what about that well-known scandal sheet, the court record? That separation suit was faked, I suppose. Mrs. Kelsey has reconsidered since then. Oh, well, congratulations. You stay married to her long enough, you too can be in the social register. The social register. I'd express an opinion on that point, Stone, but not to you. My wife's passion for blue blood is a foible outside the realm of this discussion. However, if it uh, helps convince you that we've solved our differences, you might note that we're entertaining tonight with a little reception in honor of Count Raphael de Guidio. Oh, where did Max go when he left here? How do I know? Now will you get out of here? Yes, with pleasure. I need a little fresh air. <laughs> Oh, hello, Mrs. Saracen. Yes? It's Randy Stone again. Oh. Has Max gotten home yet? No. Uh, no, he'll be home late. He's dining out. What's that? He, he called up a little while ago. I guess you know what happened, don't you? It was awfully generous of Mr. Kelsey. The whole thing was a mistake. He never meant to have Max arrested. But I do appreciate your concern for Max. It was good of you to call me. Uh, look, who is Max dining with? Why, it was Mr. Kelsey at his home. He wants to discuss a part with Max for his Henry IV. It's a wonderful break. Just what we've been hoping for. Max was all choked up with emotion when he told me about it. It's about time. Poor darling. So Kelsey had actually invited Max over to his home. Why? What kind of web was he weaving for the old actor? Whatever it was, I knew it. Had only one purpose in Kelsey's twisted mind, to destroy Max Saracen, to get even. I got into my car and headed for the Gold Coast where Kelsey lived. I pulled up in the courtyard, went to the door, flashed my press card to the butler. Thank you, sir. I believe you'll find most of the press people in the next room by the punch bowl. Oh, thank you for the tip, but I'm looking for one special character, Max Saracen. Have you seen him? Saracen, sir... I know, sir. I do not believe... All right, I'll look around. He's probably somewhere in that mob on the ballroom floor. I think not, sir. Right. There has been no Mr. Saracen. I've let in everyone, sir, and there's been no one by that name. That's quite definite, sir. I would remember a name like that. Yes, well, I'll look anyway. Thank you. Uh, 
I shouldered my way through all that soup and fish, feeling as conspicuous in my everyday clothes as a burglar at a policeman's convention. Where was Max? I glanced from one face to another. There must have been nearly 300 of them there. Was he in another part of the house? Had he come in by another entrance? I couldn't be sure. Kelly, Kelsey was nowhere to be seen either. If he was alone with Max, there was no telling what would happen. I spotted Mrs. Kelsey over with a group of females clustered about the guest of honor. I was heading in her direction for information when a voice behind me brought me up short. Stone! Well, what are you doing here? I'm slumming, Kelsey. Where's Max? I know he was coming here. Charles! Well, it's about time you were arriving. Whatever's been keeping you? I've been tied up at the office, and then I had to get dressed. Oh, uh, Edith, this is Mr. Stone, the Chicago star. My wife. How do you do? How do you do? Charles, the Count has been here for quite some time now. Come on and meet him. Hurry. Kelsey, as soon as you're through, I'd like a word Oh, Mr. Stone, you really should meet the Count Raphael de Guidio yourself. He's just arrived from Barcelona, and he's truly one of the most delightful and charming gentlemen I've ever met. A true aristocrat. Yes, it'll be a pleasure, I'm sure. Uh, this way. <laughs> oh, poor man. Just look at him over there behind those palms. Where? I don't see him. Over there, in the midst of all those women. They're simply devouring him. Oh, Count Raphael. We'd better go round. Here he is. Oh, Count Gideon. Ah, Signora Kelsey. I am... Oh. The Count de Guidio stood staring at me A red ribbon of honor, three medals decorating his magnificent dress coat In fact, any way you looked at him He was a magnificent figure of a man With a magnificent snow-white Van Dyke beard Every inch an aristocrat Except, of course, he wasn't the Count de Guidio at all He was Max Saracen My husband Charles, your highness it is indeed a pleasure, Mr. Kelsey. I have been looking forward to this for a long time, Count. Yes, indeed. Uh, and Mr. Va- uh... A Stone. A Randolph Stone. Esquire. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. The Count de Guidio. Uh, Mr. Stone is a journalist. Well met, Mr. Stone. Well met. I uh, have always admired the gentlemen of the Fourth Estate. To hold a mirror to our life and times is a profession requiring uh, discretion, understanding, and perhaps the ability to uh, uh, say less than one knows. Why, Count Raphael, you're a philosopher. Yes, I, uh, I see what you mean, Your Highness. Uh, silence, even uh, for a journalist, can be golden, Mr. Stone. Yes, golden. It can also be yellow. Oh, oh I see Commodore and Mrs. Dwight Friedenberg have just arrived. Will you excuse me, please? I'll bring them over. All right, what goes on here? What's the idea? Randy, please. I'm Paying him well for this. Uh, will you join me in a bit of punch, Randy? If uh, his highness will excuse us. But, of course. All right. <laughs> Come on, have a glass of punch, Stone. It isn't too bad. You won't get away with it. Not after the morning edition. <laughs> after tonight, Stone, the more you expose me, the better I like it. You know, it occurs to me that I should have invited you here in the first place. Your present fits very nicely. What are you trying to do? <laughs> Teach my wife a lesson. Mm, oh, funny. come on, I do say. Have, have some punch. No, thank you. I've already tasted it. My dear blue-blooded wife will get the lesson of her life. Kelsey, why don't you see a psychiatrist? <laughs> you do need a drink, old boy. Yeah. Is there a real Count de Guidio? I suppose there must be. Naturally. He was due to be here tonight, but I received a wire at my office saying that his plane was grounded en route from Miami, Lisbon, and Point Seas. Uh-huh. So, not wishing my dear wife to be disappointed... Oh, Charles. Yes? Oh, I'm afraid the Count isn't feeling very well. Oh, dear, I suppose it has been an awfully hard trip. He has to leave. Oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry. Where is he? In the hall. I've had Perkins bring him his things. Oh, it really is too bad with the evening so young. 
Max was getting into a big black limousine as I ran down the stairs to the driveway. I called to him. Max! The car door slammed shut. A uniformed chauffeur threw the limousine into gear and spun away as I reached the side of the car. I was about to turn and go back into the house to question Kelsey when I saw the car circle the driveway and stop at the servant's entrance. As I hurried over, Max was getting out and was stripping off his overcoat. Oh, Max, now don't tell me that Kelsey wants that outfit back before you go. Randy. What goes on? If you must know, I, I'm going to help in the kitchen. In the kitchen? Yes, yes, the kitchen. Are you satisfied? But why? What for? For a hundred dollars. A hundred? How much did you get for playing the count? Also a hundred. But I don't get it until I earn the second hundred dollars. But why? Why would he pay a hundred dollars for a dishwasher? I don't know, I don't know. But I've got to do it, Randy. I need the money. You might as well know it. Now go away, please. Let me get it over with. Okay, Max, but... You'll get it over with a lot faster with an understudy to assist you. An understudy? Yeah, me. Come on. So this was the payoff. This was the booby trap. I couldn't help feeling it was even meaner than it looked, and I wanted to be around to try to keep it from exploding. We went around and back the servants' entrance and stepped into the kitchen. Servants had evidently been briefed by Kelsey, but they said not a word. They asked no questions. They just stared at us and whispered a little to each other. A stout old dame pointed to the pile of dishes in the sink. Them there. Thank you. Uh, what about an apron, Max? You can't wash dishes in that dress suit without... I've a... got to, just as I am. It's part of the agreement. I won't kid you, Randy. I've got to do this. It's vital. My wife and I, we've been starving. Uh, you don't, don't have to tell me. Look, when Kelsey decides to get even, he doubles it in spades. <laughs> We grabbed a couple of dish mops and went to work. Max laughed silently to himself as he worked, silently and bitterly. He turned to me. A king to account to a scullery boy in one short day. A breathless descent, eh, Randy? For my dough, you're still king, Max. Thank you, lad. I, a king. You may me glory and me state depose, but not me griefs. I'm still king of those... Oh, forget about it. What's another dish to Kelsey? There I lie like a broken plate, used briefly, and then life is short, Randy, so short. So what? It's not the length, but the performance that counts, and you were always great, Max, always. You're a kind wag, my lad, a veritable squire of the night, a minion of the moon. We're the moon's lovers, you and I, Randy, governed by her as is the sea, for our fortunes do ebb and flow like the ocean's tides, now up. Now down... Well, that's life, Max. It's like sitting in the aisle seat in the movies. Past the cleanser. By heaven, I'll hate you everlastingly if you bid me be of comfort anymore. I am barren, bereft of friends. But you're not, Max. I have lost the name of king. My jewels are a set of tawdry beads. My place of verminous hermitage. My rich apparel a beggar's garb. Oh, make foul weather with despised tears. Curse heaven and die! Oh, he's falling to pieces. I've got to get him out of here before... Uh -oh. <laughs> right in here, ladies and gentlemen. Tycoons, barons, and literary lions. Here. Here's the surprise I told you about. Kelsey, stay out of here. <laughs> Hold the music, please. Please. <laughs> here he is. Your nobleman from Spain, your aristocrat. The Count Raphael de Guido in person. <gasps> Count Raphael. What's the meaning of this? Charles. <laughs> this is the silk purse, my dear. The one you keep telling me cannot be made from a sow's ear. Well, look at it. 
The sow's ear that you were convinced was the silk purse I never could become. Your born gentleman. The kind of gentleman I never could be. Oh, no, I'm not good enough. Well, meet him. <laughs> How goes it, Count? When you're through with those dishes, come out and give these hypocrites some more samples of your wits and gentility. Look at him, Edith. Look! Your gentleman. My hired clown. Oh, you... You're <laughs> unspeakable. Oh, you weak-minded phony. The only thing you've proved is that Max is a gentleman compared to you. Villain! Viper damned beyond redemption! Max, take it easy. Snake whom we've warmed with our hot blood. Spotted Judas! Keep away from me. Will ye bring Max. calumny upon our fair name? By heaven! Max, don't. Come ah! back! Get away! Get away! Put me down! But it wasn't, Max. Someone else. A giant. A king with a face of iron. Let go! Help! Well, put him down, Max. Put him down. I'll make a gold gutter, you grinning skull. No, Max, don't. Put him down. When there are devils, cast them out. Max had lifted him over his head and hurled him through the window to the street below. I clutched his arm and half-dragged, half-pushed him out of the door and down the stairs to the street. I got him into my car and we drove about for a while. He sat beside me, staring ahead lifelessly, as he had once before that night. The power and the majesty had gone out of him. He was just a tired old man once more talking to himself without making a sound. I stopped in front of a drugstore. I got out and found a telephone. I dialed the Kelsey residence. Yes? Uh, who's talking? Sergeant Charles Inc., city police. Who's this? Oh, uh, this Randy Stone. I just left there a little while ago. Hey, you I took I... Max Saracen with you. Yeah, that's right. He's with me now. Keep him there. Where are you? In front of a drugstore, corner of Maine and Flower. How is Kelsey? Was he hurt much? Yeah, he's dead. I went to the car and sat down beside Max. He looked at me with a strange new light on his bearded face. One that was tragic and far off. We have lost the name of kings. May golden cup becomes a dish of wood. Easy, Max. May one time kingdom a grave, a little grave, an obscure grave. Max, listen to me. Can you understand what I'm saying? Nay, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. For death sits within the hollow crown that rounds our mortal temples and grins the buffoon, scoffing at our state... I, a king? <laughs> you have mistook me all the while. But I only live by bread like you, dear cuz, like you. Give me that man that is not passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core. I, in my heart, as I... He do. sat there beside me quoting Shakespeare. He didn't know me or hear me. I don't think he ever saw me. Once more. He was in another world. Once a world more. of his own dreams. God I heard the siren of the approaching police and car. And I know that though his body still lived, Max was gone. The king was dead. the lights are winking out one by one from Clark Street with its flop houses to State Street with its glittering shops. Dawn is around the corner, bringing an end to sleep and to the dreams of those who walk by day and rest by night. Well, as Mr. Shakespeare himself once said, life itself is but a dream. 
a dream are real, we only go through here once. Too bad we don't make more of it. Oh, well. Copy, boy. And here he is, the star of Nightbeat. That was a fine story tonight, Frank Lovejoy. Well, thank you very much. And let's uh, thank Wheaties. Wheaties is sort of our middle name this summer, huh? Well, a nicer middle name I can't think of, Frank. Uh, folks at your house getting the Wheaties every morning, just like always? Oh, sure, sure. The kids love them. I do, too, as a matter of fact. We got a regular spot for Wheaties on the kitchen shelf. You know, the salt goes here, flour goes here, Wheaties go here, right up in front, of course. <laughs> sure, I know. Every well-run cupboard should have a spot for the Wheaties. And millions of cupboards do, I guess. Yeah, say, uh, what is it they, they say about Wheaties? America's favorite whole wheat flakes. Breakfast of champions, that's it. Had a boy. Thank you, Frank Lovejoy. We'll see you next week. Get your Wheaties, folks. As Frank said, keep them right up in front of the kitchen shelf. Have them for breakfast tomorrow morning. Remember, Wheaties at 7 and help at 11. Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis and edited by Larry Marcus. Tonight's transcribed story was written by Erwin Ashkenazi with music by Frank Worth. The part of Max Saracen was played by Tudor Owen. Wally Mayer played Kelsey. Others in tonight's cast were Eleanor Audley, Anne Keenan, and Harry Bartell. Listen next week at this same time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. And this is the Wheaties man, Frank Martin, inviting you to listen also on Tuesday, that's tomorrow night, to the Penny Singleton Show on the Wheaties Big Parade. See you then. Forest fires again are destroying thousands upon thousands of our precious wooded areas and watersheds. Nine out of ten forest fires are started by human carelessness. Crush out all cigars and cigarettes. Break matches in two after using drench campfires. Always find out what the law is about the use of fire in any particular wooded area. Save our forests from their enemy. Next, Alona Massey stars on Top Secret on NBC. Palmel Famous Cigarettes presents The Big Story. Get out of my way, you're right. What'll it be, Chester? Right straight, Bob. Looking for someone? Roy. Ask Big Lenny there. Hey, Lenny. Hiya, Chess. I didn't see you come in. Seen my stupid brother-in-law? No. What's he done? A rat. I got a Lulu for us way down in Butte already and ripe, and that punk's hiding out on me. Hiding out? Yellow punk. One of these days, if he don't do like I say, I'll put a bullet through his ears myself. The Big Story. Here is America. Its sound and its fury, its joy and its sorrow, as faithfully reported by the men and women of the great American newspapers. Helena, Montana. From the pages of the Independent Record, the story of a reporter who gambled his own life to avenge a murder. Tonight to Alan Copperthwaite of the Helena, Montana Independent Record for his big story goes the Pell-Mell $500 award. 
against Rhodes grass. Enjoy the smooth walking of smoke a pell-mell. Yes, smoke a pell-mell. Then discover how pell-mell's greater length of fine tobaccos filters the smoke on the way to your throat. Filters the smoke and makes it mild. Remember this. The further your cigarette filters the smoke through fine tobaccos, the milder that smoke becomes. At the first puff, pell-mell smoke is filtered further through fine tobaccos than that of any other leading cigarette. Then what's more after five puffs, or ten, or seventeen by actual measure, Pell-Mell's greater length of traditionally fine tobaccos still travels the smoke further, filters the smoke, and makes it mild. Thus, Pell-Mell's fine, mellow tobaccos give you a smoothness, mildness, and satisfaction no other cigarette offers you. So smoke Pell-Mell famous cigarettes. Outstanding. And they are mild. <laughs> Helena, Montana. The story as it actually happened, Alan Copperthwaite's story as he lived it. Paul Rogers, 29-year-old Butte service station attendant, was found missing from his post 4.30 this morning. Sheriff Mark Duncan of Silverbow County responded to the alarm of two men who drove up to the East End Station for gas and found the place unattended. Approximately $50 in cash is missing from the register. Oh, that's how it began for you, Alan Copperthwaite, state editor of the Independent Record. But this little story which comes tapping off the Associated Press teletype, informing you that your lifelong friend, Paul Rogers, is missing. Your job holds you to your desk for an hour after the receipt of the first message. But immediately afterwards, you're in your car, racing the 66 miles from Helena to your hometown of Butte. Racing to find out what you can do to help Sheriff Mark Duncan find your friend. We got there maybe 4.44 this morning, Ellen. Any signs of a fight, Sheriff? No, none. There was a half-eaten sandwich, a container of coffee, and an upended oil drum. Cash register keys show any prints? Oh, badly smudged. What's your next step? Well, the police radio car is giving out with a description of Paul. Right now, there's maybe 30 men in the big room next door I gotta talk to. You sit among the solemn men and boys in the big room, waiting for the sheriff to speak. You know it would be out of place, Alan Copperthwaite. But if you had the opportunity, you'd like to shake the hand of each one of these people and thank them. Because these were volunteers, many of them who'd never even met your friend Paul Rogers, who knew nothing of his honesty, his sense of humor, his kindness. And yet they were all here in the early hours of the morning. All right, quiet. Quiet, everybody. Now, quiet, please. Quiet. It looks bad. It's almost three hours now since Rogers disappeared. My deputies will break you up into searching parties. Some of you will take the town, some of you to the side roads near town, some of you to the abandoned mine. I want every inch of ground gone over. Within an hour after the men and boys had formed brigades and left the county building, 
the work begins. Every abandoned building in and around Butte is opened and searched. The bushes along every side road are carefully examined. Look out down there! Abandoned mines are gone through, sometimes at the peril of a volunteer's life. One day, two days, three, four days. Four days and nights of endless search. Nothing, absolutely nothing has turned up as to the whereabouts of your friend, Paul Rogers. Fever, Sheriff, you ought to stick to your office on a night like this. Oh, I can't, Ellen. There's a search going on. I got the reward up to $1,150 now. You... You think he's dead by now? Well, he's been missing four days. What can I do? You and I know we're up a blind alley. At a standstill. But whoever took Paul away mustn't know that. Whoever took Paul away mustn't get a minute's rest. That's what you can do. It doesn't seem like much, but that's what you do in the next few days. Police officers today intensified their search into the mysterious disappearance of Paul Rogers. Today, Sheriff Mark Duncan announced that he had extended the police dragnet to every border of the state. Today, authorities announced that they anticipate an early solution to the mysterious disappearance of Paul Rogers. Day after day, you found it out, Alan Copperthwaite. Stuff you'd written dozens of times as a reporter. Stuff you'd read dozens of times as an editor and never believed. But you had no way of knowing at this point the effect you were having 234 miles away in the city of Billings on a thin-faced little man named Roy Stover. Lenny, have a drink with me, Lenny. What for? I, uh, I want to talk with you before Chester comes in. Anything you've got to say, you can say it to me in front of your brother-in-law. You don't understand, Lenny. I got a proposition for you. Like what? You're a gambler. Take a chance with me. On what? On $1,150. What are you talking about? Don't stall me, Lenny. You know, the job me and Chester pulled down in Butte. I didn't want to. Lenny, I didn't want to, but he made me do it. Just because I married his sister, he thinks he owns me. Where's Snivelin? What do you got in that rotten little mind of yours? I got to get away. I got to get away from here. I need money. They got a reward out. $1,150. Turn him in, Lenny. Turn Chester in. Get the money. Just give me enough to get away from Billings. He'll never know who turned him in. You snake, you dirty little snake. Now let go of me, Lenny. Let go of me. If I ever told Chester, he'd kill you. But he's going crazy. You don't understand. He's making me poop jobs in and filling for them in broad daylight. We'll get caught. He's, he's going crazy. Lenny, do it. Do it, Lenny. So I can get away. Before I turn on Chester, I'd sooner see you dead. <laughs> Honey, are you home? That's funny. She called me to come home, but she ain't here. Hello, Roy. What are you doing here? Your wife's my sister. What did you forget? What do you want, Chester? Sit down, brother-in-law. Your knees are knocking. I, I don't like it when you make fun of me like this. 
I don't like it. It always means you're going to do something to me. Why should I want to hurt you, Roy? I don't know. I don't know. But I can tell. What have you been up to that I should want to hurt you, Roy? I didn't say I was up to anything. I didn't say that at all. What kind of proposition were you making Lenny over at Ma Peterson's? Proposition? I, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're a rotten little rat. Don't oh. lie to me. Don't ever lie to me. Chester, you're hurting me, Chester. Ma Peterson said that two you had your horns locked together earlier tonight at her place. What were you cooking up? Lenny, Lenny's a pal of yours, ain't he? What would I be talking about with Lenny that could hurt you? Lenny's a friend of yours. Ask him. What? What did Lenny tell you? He said you were just complaining as usual about me. Yeah, I told you. That's all it was, Chester. Lenny told you the truth. And I'm not taking any chances on your blowing your top. We're leaving town. Where are we going this time? You'll find out when we get there. Copperthwaite. Alan, we need you. What's happened, Sheriff? Meet me at the morgue. We found him in a gravel pit three miles out of town. How? How long do you... And he must have been killed only a few hours after the kidnapping. They? Two bullets in his back, one through his right eye. They must have let him out of their car, told him to run for his life. One of them plugged him in the back, and the other finished him off. The two bullets in his back, and one through his eye, are different calibers. best friend, Paul Rogers. His laughter was dead. His honesty was dead. His life with his girl was dead. Murdered. And you, Alan Copperthwaite, as state editor of your paper, are chained to your desk reading local items about picnics, church festivals, about poultry shows, about the sale of Ranch A to Man B. And all the time, your mind strains to break free from your desk. So much so that it takes a little while before the flood of items off the teletype from Billings, Montana, begins to catch your eye. Last night, two unidentified gunmen robbed a hamburger stand on the south side of Billings. Late this afternoon, two unidentified gunmen stole an automobile owned by Mr. and Mrs. Frank Belson, first locking the couple in the trunk of the car and releasing them three miles south of the city. After this morning's holdup of the Main Street service station by two masked gunmen, Billings police announced their belief that the city is in the grip of a two-man crime wave. A two-man crime wave. Were they the two? The sheriff was looking for them in Butte and Helena. Could they actually be 234 miles away in Billings? Why not? Why not? Molly, give me the boss. Harry, this is Al. I'd like to come in and talk with you about my vacation. Yeah, I know it's not due till October, but I'd like to have it now. Why? I think I've got some friends I'd like to see in Billings. 
against throat grass. Enjoy the smooth walking of a fine tobacco. Smoke a pell-mell. Yes, smoke a pell-mell and discover how pell-mell's greater length of fine tobaccos filters the smoke on the way to your throat, filters the smoke, and makes it mild. At the first puff, pell-mell smoke is filtered further than that of any other leading cigarette. And what's more, after five puffs, or ten, or seventeen by actual measure, Pell-Mell's greater length of traditionally fine tobacco still travels the smoke further, filters the smoke, and makes it mild. Thus, Pell-Mell's fine, mellow tobaccos give you a smoothness, mildness, and satisfaction no other cigarette offers you. Guard against throat scratch. Enjoy the smooth smoking of fine tobaccos. Smoke a Pell-Mell. Wherever you go today, notice how many people have changed to Pell-Mell. The longer, finer cigarette in the distinguished red package. Enjoy the smooth walking of fine tobacco. Smoke a Pell-Mell. Pell-Mell famous cigarettes. Outstanding. And they are mild. <laughs> This is Cy Harris, returning it to your narrator and the big story of Alan Copperthwaite as he lived it and wrote it. Now, at last, you're free, Alan Copperthwaite. Free from your debt. Free to do legwork. Free to submerge yourself in the cheap saloons and beer parlors and Billings Skid Row. If Billings' two-man crime wave was being pulled off by the same men who killed your friend, Paul Rogers, you'd get on their trail soon enough. In a city the size of Billings, with a population of only 30,000, and with an underworld whose population was less than 1,000, the odds were with you. The Silver Dollar, the Pink Lady, the Ranch House, Eagle's Head, the Dance Hall, Paradise. You go through them all, night after night, and your eyes and ears and senses are as keen as any hunter's ever were. Your time is beginning to run out. You realize that very quickly one night. I'll have another beer. No more for you, mister. Why not? Move on, mister. What for? I said move on. Makes my customers nervous to have a guy sitting around nursing his beer, just being quiet. Move on, mister. So you move on wearily. Your senses reeling with the strain and effort of watching and waiting and listening. And when you head for the door to leave at Ma Peterson's Bar and Grill, a little incident occurs which means nothing to you at the moment. Uh, Why don't you look where you're going? Sorry, mister, I was just going out. Didn't see you come in. I ought to break your skinny neck for you. I said I was sorry. Come on, beat it. If you hadn't been so tired, you wouldn't have staked your 135 pounds against the hulk of the bitter, angry man who towered at least a foot over you. So you head away from Ma Peterson without realizing that the big man who had threatened to break your skinny neck was at that very moment taking a step, which before long might mean your life. I'm not lending you any money, Lenny. Ma, you got to. I'm in a fix. Who fixed you? Little like. I shouldn't have done it, Ma. We shot some traps. I'm $630 into him. I can't do nothing for you. But you got to. Everybody knows you lend money. I'll pay you your regular rate. Sure, I lend money. But you got nothing to put up for it. 
so you ain't getting any. Ma, you don't understand. I can't fool around with him. I promised him the money. <laughs> well, it'll like us no more than half your size. What's a big guy like you scared of, Lily? I'm scared because the bigger you are, the easier to mark for a bullet. Ma, lend me the money, will you? No. The following night, more desperate now because your face is becoming familiar, you start the routine all over again, Alan Copperthwaite. The silver dollar, the pink lady, the ranch house, eagle's head, the dance hall, paradise. By midnight, you're back again at Ma Peterson's bar and grill. To your left at the bar, sits a little man with a face as hard as flint. Despite his size, there's something about him which tells you that he's afraid of nothing. You get your proof soon enough. And the giant of a man who ran into you the night before comes into the bar and walks meekly up to the little man near you. You strain to catch every word of their conversation. Where's my money? Uh, I'll get it for you, Ike. When soon? That's not soon enough. When? Uh, tomorrow. From who? Uh, from who? You heard me. From, uh, from Ma Peterson. You're lying. She won't lend you a cent. Uh, I'll get it for you, Ike. When? I said I'd get it for you. How? Oh, get a How? That's my business. It's mine too. How? More than a grand. It's mine for the asking. I said how? More than a grand. It's mine for the asking. $1,150 if you want to know. A crazy jukebox. Who turned on the jukebox? Now you can't hear a thing. They're just talking. The giant of a man and his little tormentor. You're positive you heard him right. He said $1,150. Was it a coincidence? Or was it the reward money he was talking about? How they've ended their conversation. The big man they call Lenny is getting ready to leave. If he walks out, you may never see him again. How could you make sure, Alan Copperplate, it was the reward money he was talking about? What can you say to him? You've got to say something. You've got to chance it. Lenny, what do you want? I, I've been looking for you. What about? About this kidnapping down in Butte. What? What do you know about it? You know, plenty. I know a fellow wants to fell off the cliff. He was top-heavy from having too much in his head. Let's take a little walk, mister. Uh, why don't we have a drink? I want to... Take a little walk, mister. It's my arm you've got. I know. Let's take a little walk. Outside, it's dark and cold. And the street is deserted. Big Lenny has a crushing grip on your arm. You'd made contact with him, all right. What now? What were you going to do now? Talk, mister. If you know who pulled that job in Butte, I can get you the reward fast and quiet. You're lying. You're a friend of Chester's. Who? You're lying. You'll squeal on me. You're a friend of Chester's. Now, get away from that street life. Move. Get into that alley. The night is cold, but the sweat is pouring down Big Lenny's face. If you weren't thinking about your own life at the moment... You'd be fascinated by the strange mixture of fear and murder, which is motivating this big man who has shoved you up against a wall in a dark alley. Now, tell me who put you on to me. Nobody. you got to believe me. Yeah. The sheriff from Butte's a personal friend of mine. I can get you the reward easy and quiet. How do I know you're on the level? You need the money. I overheard you talking with that little man at the bar. I think he'll knock you off unless you come up with the money. I don't need any advice. How do I know you're on the level? You just tell me who and where those two men are, and I'll prove to you I'm on the level. How do I know you're not a friend of Chester? Look, here's the nearest phone. I'll put through a call to the sheriff in Butte. You can talk to him yourself and tell him what you know. 
I don't care about that punk Roy. But Chester's a friend of mine. Paul Rogers was a friend of mine. It ain't easy to turn in a friend. But I need the money. It's my life for his. I need the money. Lenny's hand on your arm grows limp and drops away. You watch his miserable, sweating face as he struggles with himself. The struggle of every man who has turned in a friend for money. It's not a pleasant thing to watch. Under other circumstances, it would have sickened you as it would any decent human being. But now you watch every move of his face until you see your opportunity. You've got no choice, Lenny. What do you mean? You know who pulled that job in Butte. Uh, if you don't tell, you can be picked up for obstructing justice. Uh, if the little man inside that bar doesn't get you first. Uh, Roy Scoville and Chester Pritchett did it. They're back in Butte right now at the Farmer's Hotel. They must be in there, Sheriff. Unless the hotel clerk didn't see them go out. You men, don't crowd in like this. Spread out in case you try to make a break. Right. Okay, I'll try it again. Who's there? Hotel clerk. What do you want? I want to talk to you about your bill, sir. What about... Up you? with your hands. Chester, it's the law. There he is, asleep. What's that? Get up off that bed. What's this about? Which one of you is Scoville and which one is Pritchard? That's him. He's Chester Pritchard. He, he made me do it. Shut up. No, I won't. I told you. I told you to get up. He made you do what, Scoville? The job here is due. All those hold-ups are billing. I'll kill you. Shut your mouth. I'm not afraid of him. Not anymore. I've got nothing to be afraid of anymore. I married his sister. That was my mistake. Anytime he wanted me to do anything, he'd get her to go to work on me. I knew it would end this way. I knew it. Now I'll talk. I'll tell you everything you want to know. And he does. The frightening story of the power one man can have over another. Power enough to get him to agree to rob and kill. But for you, Alan Coppersweight, there was to be one final little irony. It took place in Sheriff Mark Duncan's office the day Big Lenny Watson collected his reward money. Eleven hundred... 1120, 1140, 1150. Here's your money, Watson. All of it. Hey, how about a thank you, Lenny? What for, reporter? What did you ever do for me? In just a moment, we'll read you a telegram from Alan Copperthwaite of the Helena, Montana Independent Record with the final outcome of tonight's big story. Guard against throat scratch. Enjoy the smooth walking of Smoke a Pell-Mell. Yes, smoke a Pell-Mell. Then discover how Pell-Mell's greater length of fine tobaccos filters the smoke on the way to your throat. Filters the smoke and makes it mild. Remember this. The further a puff of smoke is filtered through fine tobaccos, the milder it becomes. 
guard against throat scratch. Enjoy the smooth walking of my Pell-Mell, famous cigarettes. Outstanding. And they are mild. Now we read you that telegram from Alan Copperthwaite of the Helena, Montana, Independent Record. Murderers in tonight's big story were sentenced to life imprisonment at Montana State Penitentiary at Deer Lodge, where they are this very day. Although I could not bring my friend Paul Rogers back to life, I feel that in some small measure I was able to prove my everlasting friendship for him. Many thanks for tonight's Pell-Mell Award. Thank you, Mr. Copperthwaite. The makers of Pell-Mell Famous Cigarettes are proud to present you the Pell-Mell $500 Award for notable service in the field of journalism. Listen again next week, same time, same station, when Pell-Mell Famous Cigarettes will present another big story. A big story from the front pages of the Johnstown, Pennsylvania Democrats. Byline... Leo W. Sheridan, a big story about a reporter who lived up to a lifelong promise made to a loyal friend. And remember, every week you can see another different big story on television brought to you by the makers of Pell-Mell Famous Cigarettes. The Big Story is produced by Bernard J. Proctor with original music composed and conducted by Vladimir Selinsky. Tonight's program was adapted by Abram F. Guinness from an actual story from the front pages of the Helena, Montana, Independent Record. Your narrator, Bob Sloan. Bill Lipton, play the part of Alan Coppersweight. In order to protect the names of people actually involved in tonight's authentic Big Story, the names of all characters in the dramatization were changed with exception of the reporter, Mr. Copperthwaite. Ernest Chappell speaking for the makers of Pell-Mell, famous cigarettes. Friends, sometime between March 13th and April 13th, letters and closing Easter seals will be sent to Americans in all states and territories. When you receive the letter, we urge you to buy Easter seals for this money serves the needs of crippled children of all ages, races, and creeds. Lend a hand. Help crippled children. Buy the Easter seals you receive. Here's an important message from the National Tobacco Tax Research Council. This fact-finding organization calls to your attention the fact that you smokers give nearly $2 billion a year to your government in cigarette taxes. Every time you buy cigarettes, you give your federal government eight cents a pack and... Most of you give three or four cents more to city and state government. Now that adds up to better than a 50% tax on every cigarette you smoke. Yes, in buying cigarettes, over half your packs go for tax. Tune in again next week, same time, same station, for another authentic big story. Next, it's The Silent Men on NBC. That's the Relic Radio Show for this week. There's more from Big Story... Nightbeat, past episodes of this podcast and all the others at relicradio.com. You can also donate while you're visiting relicradio.com by clicking on one of the links or visit donate.relicradio.com. Your support makes it all happen and has for 15 years. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Talk to you again next Tuesday with another hour of the Relic Radio Show. Relic Radio.